Keep your Bible open to Genesis chapter 2. So the other day I was reading a book about marriage. And the book is called How to Stay Married by Harrison Scott Key. Uh, the book is a, is a memoir about one, mari- or one married couple's journey. I won't ruin it for you. It's worth reading, so I won't spoil anything there. But here is, is the author's answer to the question. This is how he started the last chapter when he's answering this question, how do we stay married? I thought this was, this was pretty interesting. He says, if you're going to stay married, the first thing you're going to need is to be insane. Because staying married is insane. Getting married is not. Getting married is fun. In the weeks and months before the wedding, you're in passionate love with this glorious gift of a human. The ring, the announcement, the engagement, the photos where you hold hands and close your eyes and lean in and touch your foreheads together like a pair of telepathic freaks. That part is fun. Staying married is not fun. Staying married is like being kicked repeatedly in the head by a mule who loves you. And the mule is God. (laughs) So clearly, I mean, he's being funny, right? This is written. He's actually a comedian by trade. But typically things are funny because there's some truth to them. And the truth he's getting at here is that marriage is hard. Staying married is hard. And I'll say right up front, I have a great marriage. Eight years in, being married to Allie has been one of the greatest blessings of my life. And it's been hard. (laughs) I I learned this the other day, uh, maybe what it is that's causing our marriage sometimes to be hard. Um, On Tuesday, we were out for lunch, just the two of us, and we were having a conversation about this sermon. I was kind of running everything by her to get her opinion. And at one point I said, you know, um, as I think about it, I feel like for us marriage has come pretty easy. Like, I mean, obviously, clearly, um, we've had our hard times. We've had hard seasons. Kids have you know, been a challenge, things like that. But I feel like marriage has been pretty easy. And she looked at me and she said, eh. <laughs> right? Like, eh. So I think she, it shows who it is that's causing uh, our marriage to be a little bit hard sometimes. By the way, before I go any farther, is that distracting? That Yeah, let me, let me just do this. Okay, I'm going to grab one of these mics back here. Sorry. Okay, hopefully this will be better. So hopefully that shows who it is that's causing our marriage to be difficult. But the key there is um, marriage is wonderful. Right. If you've been married, I mean, we've been married for almost eight years now. I know a lot of y'all have been married a lot longer than that. It's wonderful, but it also is hard. And so I know we probably have a lot of hurting couples in here. Maybe not hurting this moment, but if you've been married for any length of time, I'm sure that you've had times where you're hurting, right? where marriage is hard, where you're asking this question, how do we stay married? So I think that we need to take this time just to go back to a very foundational question. What is marriage for? Okay? Maybe you've entered into this institution, but, but what's it actually for? What, what, what is the point? We know that God created it, but why would anyone want to enter into it? It's a lot of, I know a lot of y'all are single. I'll, t- I'll talk to y'all here in a bit too. Why would anyone want to enter into it? And why would anyone want to stay in it once they're married? So for those of us who are married, sometimes it's helpful just to remind ourselves of the fundamentals and what this whole institution we've entered into is about. Pastor Sam likes to tell this story of Vince Lombardi. 
back in the 60s, he was the, the legendary coach of the Packers, right? The Super Bowl trophy is named after him. And in the 60s, they had, had lost, at that point when the Super Bowl was a championship game, they had lost the championship game. They're coming back the next year for training camp, and Vince Lombardi gathers his team together, one of the best teams in the league, some of the best players in the league. And he goes and he grabs a ball, and he holds the ball up, and he famously said, gentlemen, this is a football. Sometimes that's the right move when things get hard. When you've, when you've lost the championship game, when you don't know where you're going, we go back to the fundamentals. So I hope we can do that this morning. If you're struggling in your marriage, I hope that we can go back to the fundamentals and see what this is all about. If you're single but you're open to marriage, so you're single and you desire to have a spouse, but you're just not there yet, let me say what I hope for you. I hope that this will give you an accurate view of what marriage is. So first of all, by knowing what marriage is for, hopefully that will give you a helpful grid as you evaluate prospects for marriage. But also, I want to make sure that I strike, and I'm, 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 I hope I can do it well. I hope I can strike this balance, because there's this balance I'm going to talk about this whole sermon when it comes to marriage. On the one end, we don't want to have too negative view of marriage. That's why marriage rates are dropping Right? Because people are seeing, you know, kids are growing up seeing divorce in their families, and they're seeing how hard it is, and they just don't want any part of that. I hope that we see it is a wonderful gift from God. But also, if you think that your spouse is going to complete you, if you think that your spouse is going to make all your wildest dreams come true, and you're just going to skip through life together, and it's all going to be happy, and everything's going to be solved when you get married, you're going to be really disoriented when the mule kicks you in the head. So I hope to show you this balance that we have to hold, that marriage is both unbelievably wonderful and harder than you can ever imagine. And finally, let me say this. Even if you're here and you have no intention to get married or remarried, I hope that you'll continue to listen because I think this has a lot of application for you too. So let's go back to the basics. What is marriage for? And I'm going to I'm going to give you three answers for that question. Even though there are far more, we're really only going to look at like one verse here in the passage that was read for us. Um, but I'm going to give you three answers to that question. And let me just say, I try, based on principle, to avoid three-point sermons all starting with the same letter. But I had three points, and two of them started with I, so I had to do it. So we're doing it, okay? We're doing this thing for the first time ever, I think, for me. West Park is really rubbing off on me. You know, I've been here, been back for two and a half years. So we're going to see this morning that marriage is for intimacy, impact, and illustration. Intimacy, impact, and illustration. So let's start with, it, with intimacy. Intimacy, if you're taking notes. In Genesis 2, verse 18, Katie, or what Mike read for us, God says, It's not good that the man should be alone. It's not good that the man should be alone. So if you're familiar with Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, there's this refrain that takes place throughout the first two pages of our Bible. God does something, he creates something, and then he sees it, and he says, it's good. And then he creates something, and he sees it, and he said that it's good. And then he gets to Genesis 2, 18, and for the first time he says that something isn't good. It's not good that a man should be alone. Here's the interesting, I mean, think about it. We all, we all probably know this verse, right? Even non-Christians know this verse. But think about that. Why is it bad? Have you thought that? Why is that a problem? Because it's not really that Adam is fully alone. He's in communion with God. Right? He's, he's walking in the garden with God. 
he has all the animals. Yeah, like he has pets. Like for those of you who love your dog, like he's he's got his, you know, he's got man's best friend. He's he's walking around with all these animals. He he's not alone. He's not stranded, you know, in, in a garden just by himself. So why is this bad? Here's what we need to see. A foundational truth of scripture is that man is made in God's image. We are made to be like God, we are made to represent God, and we are made to reflect God to creation. And do you know this? God himself is a community, which is so amazing to think about. When you ask, what was God doing? You know, think back as far as you can. What was God doing before the foundations of the world? What was he doing? He was loving, okay? It's not that God loves, though he does that. God is love. God in Father, Son, Holy Spirit has lived in intimacy with each other for all of eternity. He has always been love. He has always been in community. So to fully reflect this God who is described in Scripture as love, we need others like us to love. You see that? If we're going to reflect him and be, a, be in his image and live in his image, we need others to love in order to reflect the Trinity. So it's not good that man is alone. He needs others with him. So let me summarize that by saying something that's going to sound super heretical when I say it, but I promise it's not. God is not all you need. I've said that plenty of times, and the heart behind it is good. And I get, I get where that comes from. In a sense, it's true. But in another sense, it's totally not true. God is not all you need. Because Adam had God, and God said, this isn't good. <laughs> because in God's humility... He made us to need other people around us. It's not enough just to do this whole Christian thing, just you and God, right? It's a lot easier sometimes, but it's not enough. It's not good for us to be alone. Our relationship with God is the most important relationship we have, but it can't be all we have. So let me stop there. Before I go any further, let me, let me talk here to the singles in the room, those who aren't married, okay? Listen to this. You do not have to be married not to be alone. Okay? That's not what this is saying. I, I, I should go without saying, but it's not saying that if you are not married, you are alone. No, not at all. Right? God made us for relationship. For some, that's relationship in marriage as well as with other people within the church and things like that. If you're single, you are still called not to be alone. Right? And so let me say that even to all the married people because we, and again, I think, I don't think, it comes out of a malicious intent. But in the church, I'm not saying just our church, in churches, we have this tendency when we talk about marriage, and we talk about marriage to a single person, to kind of give them the little head tilt and be like, I'm sure God has someone for you, right? It'll be okay. And we don't, and we don't say it, but what we imply is that they're not complete until they found a spouse, right? Like you're not actually a full human being until you've found a spouse. But the problem is, the Bible doesn't say that, and actually the Bible says the opposite of that, because in the New Testament, think about this, in the New Testament, in a culture where your value comes from the fact that you have kids, the New Testament holds singleness up as a beautiful thing, both explicitly, like Paul says it, right? Like you remember Paul says, I wish that some of you were like me. He says that it's a good thing, and also implicitly just by the fact that two of the most important people in the history of Christianity were single, right? Jesus himself was single. You're going to tell Jesus he didn't live a full life? No, right? Paul was single. 
But here's what you have to see, singles. Here's what you have to see. They were in community, okay? They were never alone. Jesus was single. Paul was single, but he was never alone. Do you remember two weeks ago, if you were here in Romans 16, Paul is naming off all these names. I think he named something like 29 names at the end of Romans. He has, even, and partially probably because of his singleness, he was able to form this web of community around him. He, he prized being with other people. Jesus did the same thing because being alone is not good for man or for woman. It's not good. So singleness in the Bible is described as a gift. We should view it that way. But marriage is a gift as well. Marriage gives us the gift of a companion for the journey of life. But as I said from the beginning, the intimacy we experience in marriage is not what we always wish it would be. Because here's what we have to remember. Though we're studying Genesis 2 this morning, you know, we don't live in a Genesis 2 world. We live in a Genesis 3 world. (laughs) So we're seeing a picture of marriage that still applies to us today. But now, in our world, anytime two people come together in marriage, it's two sinners uniting. There is no marriage that has existed since the one that God put together in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 2. There has no marriage that has existed since Genesis 3 that was not affected by sin. And so because of that, sometimes in our sinful world, the most important scriptural command that we get to make our marriage work is when Jesus tells us to love your enemy. That's actually the thing that has to get us through, is that we have to love people even though we don't get along with them. Marriage is a long journey. And the initial enthusiasm of the honeymoon will never be able to sustain us for very long. So what sustains us? What sustains us when we're into marriage and the the going gets tough? I think Dietrich Bonhoeffer has a a great line. I think about this often. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, you know, lived back in the, the early 1900s. He was in Germany when the Nazis rose up. Go research him. Amazing, amazing man of God. But when he would officiate a wedding, he always had this line that he would say to the couple. I think about this so much. He's standing before this couple, and we we just had a a wedding in our family yesterday. Josh and Anna got married. It's beautiful and and amazing. And we're standing there. There's this excitement in the air. But Dietrich Bonhoeffer would always look at the couple, and he would say this. Today, you are very much in love and think your love will sustain your marriage. But it can't but your marriage can sustain your love. You see that? You think in this moment that your love is going to sustain your marriage. We're in love, so it's all going to be good. But that's not enough. But your marriage can sustain your love. This is why I get a little uncomfortable when I officiate a wedding and the couple asks to do their own vows, which is totally fine. If you did that, I'm not judging. I've had them happen where it's really sweet and amazing and and just beautiful. Like, it can be a really great thing. But what I've also noticed is that a lot of couples, because they're in the moment, which they should be, they're in the moment, so all of their vows are about the moment. (laughs) And so what the vows tend to is, I love you so much. I think you're beautiful. I think you're handsome. I think you're funny. I can't wait to start our life together. And that's good, right? That's beautiful. But here's the problem with that. That's not what marriage vows are. Marriage vows are actually not a declaration of present love. Marriage vows are a promise. 
in front of God and all of those closest to you, a future love. It's a promise that you're not going anywhere. It's a covenant. And we have to have this foundation because the problem is that person that you stand beside, as you stand in front of the minister and get married, that person, you're never going to marry the right person. You know that? You are never going to marry the right person because right when you marry the right person, that person changes. You have to have something deeper, a covenant, a promise to last through the hard times. I love this. Stanley Howard Wass nails it. He's a a theologian. He says, we always marry the wrong person. We never know whom we marry. We just think we do. Or even if we first marry the right person, just give it a while and he or she will change. For marriage, being the enormous thing it is, means we are not the same person after having entered entered it. The primary problem is learning how to love and care for the stranger to whom you find yourself married. Isn't that good? We have to learn over and over again to find out how to stick with and covenant with this stranger we now find ourselves married to. I heard one guy say it this way, been married for 50 years. He said, my wife has been married to five men, and they're all me. Okay? That's what marriage does to you. And so maybe you walk in here this morning, and you say, this is not the person I married. And you're probably right. Okay? Because having kids changes us, job changes change us, time changes us, the Lord changes us, hard times change us. We change But let me remind you of the covenant that you made on your wedding day. Notice, you make that covenant, you're standing, and you're both talking to the person you're getting married to, and you're talking to the minister who represents God. You're making a covenant both horizontally and vertically, that you're not going anywhere, that you're committed to love them through the the hard times and the good times. I mean, here's here's the vows that Allie and I made almost eight years ago. We vowed have and to hold from this day forward, for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish, till death do us part. According to God's holy ordinance, I pledge to you my love. At first you may be swept up by love, but then eventually it becomes a deliberate choice to commit to this person for better or for worse, not the idealized version of what I think they are. And here's what I've learned as I'm finding, and again, some of y'all just roll your eyes, like eight years, that's nothing. But I know it feels like a long time at this point. At eight years, I'm finding that as we've gone on, it's gotten harder, right? It's gotten harder, but it's also gotten so much sweeter. Don't you feel that, these of you have been married for a while, it's getting so much sweeter because marriage is such a gift because it's giving you someone to be truly known by, to be truly known by but also committed to. Oftentimes, whether we admit it or not, oftentimes we live with this belief that no one could love us if they knew the real us. That's why we go to such lengths to paint ourselves in this really amazing light. That's why all of our social media pages look like our lives are awesome all the time. That's why when we walk into church on Sunday morning, we put on that smile Say, how are you doing? Good, me too, good. And then we keep, you know, we keep walking. We don't want people to know the true us. We put on this false self and we live out of that. Here's the beauty of marriage. It's not easy, but it's a person who can truly know you. 
who you can be naked and unashamed with, right? In all of life, everything is open to them. And yet, even when it's hard, they're committed to not going anywhere. Like, I can tell you, whatever your opinion is of me, you probably don't really know me, okay? But Allie does. (laughs) And if your opinion of me is negative, Allie would tell you, oh, it's a lot worse than that. But she's staying, right? She's committed. Marriage says, when I see the ugly parts of you, I'm not going anywhere. Isn't that beautiful? Right? Isn't that an amazing picture of Jesus? We'll talk about that in a second. That's what marriage is for. So here's an application. Okay? Maybe you need to have a talk today with your spouse at lunch. And maybe you need to say something like this. Here's, here's what I've written down. You can, you can change the wording or just write it down and say it like this. But maybe you need to say something like this to your spouse. I know we've been through some hard times. But I am committed to walking us alongside of you on this long journey. I know that God is forming you into something beautiful, and I want to be part of that process. And even when the ugly parts of you come out, even when the seasons are hard, guess what? You can't get rid of me. I'm not going anywhere. That's a gift, isn't it? To be able to say that. That's a gift. So that's point one. Marriage is about intimacy. It's also about impact. Impact. We started this morning in verse 15. It says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And so from the get-go, Adam has a job. Right? He has a job as a gardener. Here's the, here he's put in the garden, and he's to exercise dominion over God's creation, just as we are, being made in his image. It's, it belongs to God. It's his. But here's your job, to work it and to keep it. But quickly we realize that it's not a job that Adam could do alone. So we're told this in verse 18. God says, it's not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now we have to do some work on this, right? Because that word helper is not really actually very helpful in our English translation. It's a right translation, absolutely. But I think when we think of helper, it's almost derogatory, Right? We bring in a helper, like an intern, to get us coffee, okay? like an assistant. We need help, so we bring in someone under us who isn't equal to us to help us in the job that we're doing. But that couldn't be farther from what this actually means in the Hebrew. The word here, helper, is azer. You want to try to say that? Azer? Now you know Hebrew, so good job. Okay, at least one word. Azer. And here's what it means, okay? Whenever azer is used, azer is usually used in the context of when someone is in danger or someone has a mission that they cannot do by themselves and they're calling in help to walk alongside them as an ally to help them, okay? It's not as an assistant, it's as an ally equal with them to do the job. It's actually mostly referring to God when it's used, okay? So here's an example. Psalm Psalm 70, verse 5, David says this, I am poor and needy. Hasten to me, O God. You are my help, Azair, and my deliverer. O Lord, do not delay. So not an intern getting coffee. This is, I cannot do this without you. (laughs) I cannot do this alone. This is not a one-person job. I need you to come and help me. This is someone who is an equal and comes alongside of another as an ally in order to achieve a goal together. So Adam and Eve are teammates laboring side by side 
You see, you see this, okay? Picture this. This is not a job that Adam can do alone. He needs someone side by side with him to do the job. And so here's what this shows us. Our marriages are not just about dates and cuddling on the couch watching Netflix, though all that's great, right? It's not about travel. It's not about completing us. That's not what it's about. Marriage is actually about mission. Marriage is meant to be a means to an end. I think this is actually why the Bible has such a high view of singleness, because marriage is not the end goal, okay? Marriage is about something else. It's about having a mission together and having someone to participate in that mission with you. The reason we, we struggle with this, I think, is it's, it's so ingrained in us with all the movies we watch and the TV shows we watch. Think about how many end when the couple gets together. <laughs> That's how they end, right? Like every, I love rom-coms. They're great. Everyone ends with the couple getting together and riding off into the sunset, and that's, they're happy now. But that can't be the end. The end is actually a mission. The end is impact. Our marriage has to be some, about something more than just hanging out and having dates and having fun together, though that's all great. So let me speak to you who are looking for a spouse right now, who are evaluating. Maybe you're too young, but eventually going to get there. You're evaluating. Let me say this. If this is true... Being hot is not enough to marry the person, okay? Being, being good-looking, having similar interests, that's not enough. You're looking for a teammate in the mission that God has given you for the kingdom. That changes how we view this, doesn't it? You're looking for a teammate to walk alongside you and do what God has called you to. Let me give you an example. This is one of my favorites. Um, Priscilla and Aquila in Scripture. Just two of, two of my favorite characters in Scripture, and it's a shame we actually don't know more about them. They only show up in flashes throughout, or throughout the New Testament. And so we don't know a ton about them. We don't know if they were a young couple. We don't know if they were an old couple. We don't know if they had kids. We don't know if they couldn't have kids. We don't know if they were empty nesters. But we're introduced to them in the book of Acts. And it's so fascinating. Actually, they're never listed as just Priscilla or just Aquila. They're always together. It's Priscilla and Aquila, okay, locked together as a couple. And we're introduced to them in Acts, and actually we talked about this a little bit in our Roman series. They meet Paul in Corinth because the emperor came into to Rome. It was the emperor Claudius. He comes into Rome, and he kicks all the Jews out. So they get kicked out of their home. They go to, to Corinth, and they end up meeting Paul there. And we're told that they had this business where they made tents, which was actually really smart because we know that at this time in Corinth, there were these big games going on, kind of like the Olympic Games. So people were flooding in. They needed a place to live. And so Aquila and Priscilla are making tents. And Paul needs a way to make money. So Paul comes in and starts making tents with them. And that's, that's kind of what Paul does for two years. Is he's ministering, he's with this church, and he's making tents with Priscilla and Aquila. And they, over two years, we don't know what happens, but we know that they grow in their relationship with Paul. They know that they, are, they have a big role, I guess, in the church in Corinth. And then Paul leaves after two years to head to Ephesus. And guess who goes with him? Priscilla and Aquila. So he's such a help for them. He's like, come on, we're going to Ephesus. So they get on the boat. They go with him to Ephesus. They get there, and Paul has to leave. He has to go back home. So he heads out to Antioch, and they stay there in Ephesus. And actually, we're told that with this church in Ephesus, they are hosting the church in their home. Okay? So the whole church in Ephesus is meeting in their home. 
Here's the first point I want to make. Okay? I know some of you all, I'm looking around the room, I know some of you all are only in Knoxville for a short time. We have a lot of people who come here to, to go to UT for a while or go to another school for a while to get a degree, and then you know that you're heading somewhere else. Here's the amazing thing. Aquila and Priscilla were not home when they were in Ephesus. But it shows that they invested, right? They invested. They did, me and Allie, we've lived a couple different places. The tendency is so easy to say, I'm not really going to invest here. I know I'm not going to be here very long. But God uses them so much in a short time that they're in the city that's not their home. So even if this is not the city where you're going to get fully rooted, let me just say, you have a role to play. You have a role to play in our church. You have a role to play in our city, even if you're here for a short time. There's opportunities here. This is, this is not your vacation from mission. Okay? God has you here for a reason. So they're in Ephesus. They're, they're, they're hosting the church. And as they're hosting the church, this amazing preacher shows up, a guy named Apollos. And Apollos comes in, and, and he's, he's preaching these sermons, and they're amazing Right? They're so drawn in by this guy. Paul actually says Apollos is a much better preacher than he is. So everyone's drawn in by Apollos' preaching. But Priscilla and Aquila, probably because they've been with Paul and they have a lot of information that Apollos doesn't have, they realize that his theology is a little bit off. And they see that some of the stuff he's saying, there's some gaps in it. Some of the stuff he's saying, he's getting wrong. And they do this really amazing, mature thing. And maybe I'm just speaking as a preacher, but I love this. Okay? Here's what they don't do. They hear that Apollos is saying some things wrong. Here's what they don't do. They don't get all their friends together at lunch and go, did you hear what he said? What a heretic, right? Like, Paul would have never, right? He would have never done something like that. You know what I think? I think we should either go start our own church or start a coup and get this guy out of here, right? That's not their initial response, though in the American church, that seems to be the initial response of a lot of people when they hear someone say something they disagree with, or even that they know is off. What they do is it says this. It says they took him aside, and they explained the way of God more accurately. I love that. It's so small, but it's so big. They took him aside, and they explained the way of God more accurately. We don't know if this was one conversation. We don't know if this was ongoing conversations, but they begin to teach him what Paul taught them. And you know what's amazing? We know that Apollos was one of the key people that God used in the early church. He's mentioned a ton in Paul's letters. He was an early leader. Also, I don't know this, Martin Luther was convinced that Apollos wrote Hebrews. We don't know that for sure, right? But, but this guy had a, had a huge impact on Christianity. And it all started because this couple pulled him aside and was like, let's talk, right? Can you imagine? We can't, we can't imagine the impact they had just from those conversations with Apollos. This couple is, is awesome. They're hosting the church. They're teaching the Bible to the teacher. And then the Jews are allowed back in Rome, and we get to Romans 16. Joe preached on this two weeks ago. Paul says this, verse 3. Greet Prisca, which is another version of Priscilla, and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentile give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. That like weirdly makes me want to tear up. Because <laughs> what an amazing couple. They're hosting again. Okay? They're, back, they're back in their hometown. They're back in Rome. They're hosting the church again. Paul writes them, says they stuck their neck out for him. We don't know what that means. But just like, 
can't you imagine as they're reading this, everyone, in the, everyone knows the story, hearing this red kind of looks at them and giggles, right? Like give them a little laugh. Like they know what this couple's done. They stuck their necks out for Paul. I love this too. Paul says, all the Gentile churches want me to make, want to make sure that I tell Aquila and Priscilla, thank you. We don't know what they did, but this is, this is just a couple that wherever they go, their marriage is a blessing. They're never the superstars. They're never the rock stars. They're never out front. We don't know as much about them as we know about Paul or even Apollos. We don't know very much about what they did. But it's clear that they had a huge impact. Working often behind the scenes, God used them for his mission. So let me challenge you, okay? Married couples, maybe, you know, you hear about missionaries, you hear about people who do amazing things, and that's awesome. I hope that that's an encouragement to you. But maybe you feel, you know, that, that guilt of like, that's just not realistic right now. I don't feel like God's calling me to that right now. I don't feel like he's calling me to go plant churches for unreached people groups. Maybe he is. But if he's not, let me say this, it doesn't mean that you don't have a part in the mission. There are opportunities everywhere. You just have to look at, look for them. Look at Aquila and Priscilla. They highlight some. We have opportunities always, every day, for radically ordinary hospitality. To open up your home and let it be a safe space for people to come into. We have opportunities to support others in their missions. Mission, either through teaching, like they did for Apollos, or financial support and friendship, as they did for Paul. We have opportunities to faithfully serve the local church, using our resources to support it. You have opportunities every single day. Be on the lookout. Right? Be Aquila and Priscilla. Let your marriage be a blessing to others. doesn't have to be the perfect marriage. Okay? I can guarantee that they did not have the perfect marriage. I can guarantee that they got in fights. I can guarantee that they had rough patches. I can guarantee that they had issues with each other's in-laws. That's never been a problem for me, by the way, right? So, but I, I, can, I can promise you that they had all the things that we deal with, but their marriage was a blessing to others. I love this. Someone said that a good marriage is like a warm fireplace. Whenever you get near it, you just feel the warmth of the love between this couple. It's a blessing to people who are all around you. Let's make our marriages good for the sake of others so we can be a blessing to others like Aquila and Priscilla. And that takes us to our final point. This will be a short one. Marriage is for illustrating the gospel. Marriage is for illustrating the gospel. In Ephesians 5, Paul is writing about marriage and he references Genesis 2, 24. He says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So what Paul is saying here is that marriage, our marriages are actually an illustration of the gospel. Marriages are meant to be a visual illustration, a visual representation of God's never-stopping, never-giving-up, unbreaking, always-and-forever love, as the Jesus Storybook Bible puts it. We're supposed to show what I was talking about earlier, that covenant we've made, is supposed to reflect God's love to the world. So I've acknowledged throughout our time this morning that, that marriage is hard. But think about this. Kathy Keller points out that God is in the longest-lived, <laughs> worst marriage in the history of the world. 
God is the lover and spouse of his people, but we have given him the marriage from hell. And yet, and yet, he stays faithful, doesn't he? And yet, even when we stray, even when we're faithless, he remains faithful. Even when we turn our back on him, he pursues us. Even when we pursued other gods, he sent his son to come get us back. His love is loyal. And so, couples, you, you want the secret? Okay, I started with how to stay married. What's the secret? Love your spouse like Jesus loves you. Because Jesus sees the ugly parts of you. <laughs> like that thing that you have so well hidden when you walk in here on Sunday morning. That thing that you may be able to hide for a while from your spouse. Jesus knows it. And he loves you. <laughs> when you go to him, he welcomes you with open arms. Love your spouse that way. Commit to them how Jesus has committed to you. Of course he wants you to change. Of course he desires your sanctification. But in the highs and the lows, he stays. He stays. Love your spouse like that. Here's what I want to do. Um, here's how I want to end. I want to give us just some space here. So Dan's going to come up and, and just, just play a little bit. But I want to give us some space just to, just to spend some time with the Lord. Okay? To pray, to pray about this. To take this to, to God. And so here's what I'm going to do. I, I, I'm going to kind of free this up for you to do whatever you're led to do. Okay? So as, as Dan is playing here, we could take a few minutes. You could just sit there and pray by yourself and pray to, pray to the Lord. Maybe you're single. Maybe you're not married. Maybe you need to pray and say, God, get my heart right okay, about this. Let me view my singleness correctly. Help me to have good, um, good vision for who it is that I need to enter into marriage with. Maybe that's your prayer. But also, I'd encourage you, if you're here with your spouse, consider using this as a time surrounded by your church family just to spend some time with them in prayer. I, I, I talk to a lot of couples who struggle to pray together. Right? It's weird, right? The person you're closest to, it can be somehow awkward to initiate that sometimes. I remember me and Allie, it, it was probably five years into our marriage, and she was like, why don't we pray together? And I was like, it's awkward, and I don't know why that is. It just felt awkward. It felt awkward starting. Thankfully, we started that, and now we've been able to keep it up. But I want to maybe give you that opportunity this morning, just the spouse sitting beside you, just to pray together. Pray for your marriage. Pray for the things that are stressing you out. Pray for your future. Pray that you will be able to uphold this covenant. So I'm just going to leave some space here for you all to do whatever you feel led to do. And then I'll come up, and I'll close us, and then Dawn's going to come up after that and, and have one last announcement. So let's spend some time just together in prayer.